Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 42, reading through the Bible in a year. And uh, we got some Three Dog Night this week. I can see why you chose this song today, Matthew. Yeah, I felt like it was highly appropriate. For our listeners, why would it be highly appropriate? Well, we are reading through Jeremiah now. We, uh, we just started Jeremiah. That felt right. Three Dog Night. Feels right. So, Matthew, how did it feel reading through Jeremiah? Um, it felt eerily similar to Isaiah. Why is um, that? I mean, both prophets. The Lord talks to him. He tells him things. It seems like the Lord's people are mostly living in rebellion, turning to false gods of other lands. They're being reprimanded for it. Etc. What, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was similar to Isaiah. We talked about last time or the time before, whenever we talked about Isaiah, that that book was kind of a collection of sermons or, you know, throughout his lifetime. And that seems to be similar here with Jeremiah, even though it seems like some of these, some of these sermons are repeated or maybe out of order historically, they're not not maybe linear. And we find out some of the reason for that later when we find out that some guy, is it Baruch? Is that how we say it? Baruch, he kind of compiled stories about Jeremiah and Jeremiah's sermons and kind of put this stuff all together. And maybe there's something to that about how he organized it, even though it seems unorganized to me. I read something this week where they were saying that Jeremiah was practically unreadable because of how disordered it seems as you're reading through. So if you're feeling that as you're reading through this book, you're not alone. Yeah, I did find that it's kind of hard to follow everything that's going on. So in addition to the helpful comments that you just gave, it might be helpful just to remind everybody that Jeremiah is speaking to people and he's speaking into particular situations. So where we're looking for this book to cohere and to just flow is one unified speech. I think it is unified, but he's pulling from all of these other sermons and prophetic utterances that he's given throughout his time, and now they're being compiled together. So in the same way that we wouldn't look for the entirety of the book of Psalms to perfectly cohere in a perfect progression, we shouldn't really look for that in Jeremiah either. We already are struggling to keep this one afloat, though. At least I am. How are we struggling to keep this afloat? Because we got to read through stuff like Jeremiah. I have nothing to say about it. I don't know what to think about it. I'm glad this is on the recording. Some raw emotion. But I don't want to read Jeremiah. Seriously, I'm, I'm reading through. I'm like, I don't know what to think. It just it, it is what it is. The people were going, were whoring after other gods. They use the word whore a lot in this book. That's important. Which I noticed. Yeah. And that it's like they're whores this way. They're whoring that way. They're turning from the Lord and they're going to be judged. I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, I understand that point. And then it's like, that's it. 
I don't know what else to think. Yeah. Other than what it says. That's the point. Yeah. I mean, that's. Well, and I think. You got the message. Yeah. If if you're remembering, though, that these are a collection of his sermons, he said this over a long period of time and people aren't getting it. So the repetition, it was necessary for that group of people and probably is necessary for us as well. Very hard headed, stubborn people back then and now. Yeah. You know? Now, AJ, you said you had some fast facts for us about the book of Jeremiah. Ooh, give them to us fast. I can't do that. All right. Give I can, them to I can us. barely talk at regular speed. Give them to us at a medium rate. Okay. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible by word count. Ooh, we're supposed to act amazed, Aaron. You <laughs> missed the cue. Yeah. Aaron was reading. Okay. Yeah, that was the fact. Wait. So it's just fast fact, not fast facts. <laughs> <laughs> I have talking points like okay. like that to right. where, okay. like, I'm curious, why is Jeremiah here other than just he's similar to Isaiah in that, like what Matthew was saying, he's a prophet and, you know, he critiqued the people at that time. And Yeah, now, AJ, because you did the background research on this, at least you watched the Bible Project video. Matthew and I were listening to it this morning while yeah. I was making coffee. I only caught the very end. I of know it. that <laughs> because of the comments that you made this morning <laughs> earlier. <laughs> That's too bad. I mean, it wasn't word for word, so I was pretty sure I could identify the source. <laughs> That's fine, and Matt- I'm happy you did that. Um, That's what our read our listeners should do too. Is if they need a good overview, that's helpful sometimes. Yeah, I I think that you're being a really good example for them. But as soon as you started talking about but in this Baruch case. bringing together, you know, <laughs> this anthology of Jeremiah's uh-huh. works, I'm like, yeah, he watched the Bible Project video. I 100% did. That's great. I'm happy that you did that. In Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah is called to be a prophet for the Lord, and he protested that he didn't know how to speak. And that reminded me a little bit of Moses, And later on in the book, when Jeremiah is wanting to plead Israel's case to keep them from receiving all of God's judgment, God tells him that even if Moses or Samuel were standing there, he wouldn't relent. So we have some connection back there. But I thought it was particularly interesting that his rationale for not knowing how to speak was that he was only a youth. How old was Jeremiah, AJ? 17. I don't know. Doesn't say. 14. 13th year. Nope, that was a king. Yeah, if he were a 13 year old prophet, that would be. <laughs> he said he was young. Pretty interesting. Yeah, I don't know how old he is, but his youth is emphasized over and over again. I'm trying to see if my study Bible note has his. Um, AJ, what is the main critique that Jeremiah gives Israel? The nation has basically rejected God. You know, there's this connection between spiritual adultery and he connects it to idolatry. So I think just the people, they thought they could go to the temple and also go worship other gods. I was just directing your attention to Jeremiah 2, 9 through 13, so that you could reference the Bible as you were explaining this, where it talks about their double evil. They've exchanged um, the glory of God for useless idols. Jeremiah 2.11 and then Jeremiah 2.13. They've committed a double evil 
not only have they abandoned the Lord, but they've also dug cisterns for themselves that can't hold water. And is he saying in that part also like, hey guys, what other nation actually does this? They all stick with their false gods. You aren't sticking with the real God. Exactly, exactly. I thought that was a good point. Yeah, and I think this is the kind of description that might fuel the language of Paul in Romans 1 when he talks about individuals exchanging the glory of God for idols. These, this sort of language appears in the New Testament as well. And we've even encountered the analogy between idolatry and spiritual adultery recently in the book of James. So Jeremiah provides language for the New Testament authors. And of course, Jeremiah is writing in a stream of individuals who also use this language. Uh, But that problem of idolatry really seems like it's the central feature here. In James chapter 5, James encourages his listeners or readers to consider the prophets who suffered yet continued to to declare the word of the Lord. And in Jeremiah 2.19, there's an accusation against Israel that their own sword has devoured your prophets like a ravaging lion. So Jeremiah is probably, and the prophets before him, are probably good examples for us to look to of people who were persecuted, who suffered because they maintained faithfulness to the Lord. Now, I've got a question for you, Aaron. Throw it at me. If we zoom on up to Jeremiah 9, looking at the end of the chapter, do you think Paul drew um, some of what he said from that closing, um, those closing verses? I forget where it's at. It's in one of the Pauline letters. Yeah, I believe that Paul quotes from this text both in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Okay, because when I read that, I thought, that sounds like something that Paul said. I mean, definitely, I think 1 Corinthians, like 1 through 3, you know, chapters 1 through 3, somewhere in there. We could do a quick quick look over there. Yeah, so 1 Corinthians 1, 31, he says, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this was kind of the origins of that quote or that thought. Yeah, though that idea is repeated throughout the Old Testament, but this is a significant place. Um, I think this is also what James is referencing in James chapter 1 when he calls the rich to boast in their humiliation. Mm. Are there any happy parts in this book? <laughs> yeah, there are a few verses. Um, I want to back up for a second. All right. Here's another little trivia question. In Jeremiah 8.3, he says that death will be chosen over life by all the survivors of this evil family, those who remain wherever I have banished them. To which Pentateuchal text is Jeremiah referring? Like a 20% chance of guessing it right. Give me a shot. Hit him with your best shot. Deuteronomy. Correct book. Chapter and reference. 8-3. No. Just an incredible coincidence. (laughs) Wow, AJ, I I feel like you're not taking this intertextual exploration very seriously. (laughs) 
I'm happy I got the book. Yeah. I've been Exodus for so a So if you remember back to Deuteronomy 30, when Moses is giving his final instructions, he says in chapter 30 that he sets death and life before them, and he encourages them to choose life instead of death. So he says in verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him. For he is your life, and he will prolong your days as you live in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes on to warn about falling away, abandoning the Lord, and um, hints it in exile. And that's precisely what Jeremiah is addressing here. Even later in that chapter, verse 64, it says, it just continues that instruction that the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end to the earth to the other. And you'll serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers knew. And among these nations you will find no respite, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and falling eyes and a languishing soul. Yeah, this is not, this is sad. Yeah, I think it's a reminder that as we read Jeremiah, and we feel the force of God's judgment, we feel all the sadness of Jeremiah, we're reminded that everything he's saying has already been said in the Pentateuch, and these individuals are refusing to follow the word of the Lord. Over and over again, there's this declaration against the rulers of Israel for being bad shepherds. Those who are experts in the law, you know, experts in Torah, they, they are overlooking these commands of the Lord. They're all saying peace, peace, where there is no peace, and there's no peace because these individuals are failing to comply with the word of the Lord that they already have. So while it's really harsh and very discouraging as we read it, we're reminded they had everything that they knew. Moses already told them the word is near to you so that you can choose life, and they didn't. And in Jeremiah, it seems like it's not just God is giving oracles of judgment, even though he is. Um, he's also, you know, sad about it. He, it seems that there are a lot of references to where Yahweh is weeping at the prospect of destroying his people or the judgment that has already been enacted on his people. Um, Jeremiah 9.1 says that if only my head were a pool of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. So I think we see God's heart here too, that he wants his people to return to him. But I think it's pretty clear as you continue reading through Jeremiah that it's they are not interested in returning to God at all. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Jeremiah weeps for Israel over and over again, and he even somewhat complains to the Lord about this whole situation. So in chapter 12, we see that complaint, and he's pretty much saying, look, um, I want to contend with you. How come it seems like all the wicked are flourishing um, and my job is really, really hard? And the Lord responds, if you have raced with runners and they have worn you out, how can you compete with the horses? If you stumble in a peaceful land, what will you do in the thickets of the Jordan? So God is really challenging him to maintain his faithfulness in the midst of an unfaithful generation. And I think this would be a good 
point to draw attention to a book by a guy named Eugene Peterson called Run with the Horses, um, quest for the quest for life at its best. And he bases the title on this text, Run with the Horses, you know, this call to um, persevere in faithfulness. I listened to this on Hoopla, our local county library app, and it was really, really encouraging and helpful. And I think for anyone reading Jeremiah, not knowing what to do with it, reading that book mm-hmm. would be a really devotional approach to to this book. That was a sabbatical read for you? Is that right? Or is it around that time? It was around that time. Yeah, I, his memoir that he wrote and then a biography of him and then a couple other books I read over sabbatical. And this one was, ironically, I would listen to while I was running. So, Love it. yeah, very contextually appropriate. Did you read much about how the difference between the Septuagint version of Jeremiah is compared to the Hebrew text that we have here? I didn't prep anything. I would imagine it's probably like a third longer or something like that. It's actually shorter. Oh, so this is the only book that's probably shorter in the Greek edition. Yeah. It's 2,700 words shorter. Okay. Um, What's cut out? I think a lot of stories are just reworded that are more succinct. I don't know that there's like chunks that are cut out. Okay. There might be. But there, there were different books that reference Jeremiah in the LXX. There's Jeremiah. You have the book of Baruch. Yeah. You have Lamentations of Jeremiah, which I think is not clear. I don't know. It, is that deba- It's debated whether Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. I think that's I'm sure everything debated. is. Yeah. And then there's the Epistle of Jeremiah, Ooh. which I don't know. I didn't read them, so it's hard to talk about. I'm sorry. Wow. I can barely talk about we the one book. We pay you a lot of money <laughs> to do this, and you're not prepared. Well, once we get that Patreon going, I can quit my job. Exactly. Well, we transition into chapter 13, Matthew's favorite chapter in all of Jeremiah. Matthew, talk us through this chapter. Well, yeah, uh, our boy Jeremiah is instructed to buy a linen loincloth and put it on his waist, uh, not to dip it in water. Now, when he says, do not put it in water, is the Lord just instructing him not to wash this loincloth? Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and why, why would that be? As I'm reading that, I think Jeremiah is portraying a mini parable, we might say, and we'll come to find later that this loincloth is Israel in the parable. And I think the reason he's not supposed to put it in water is so that it becomes dirty before it's tucked away. I I think it's a picture of what Israel is like. Dirty underwear. I guess w- that first verse with the instruction, it says, loincloth, put it around your waist. Do not dip it in water. So he's saying, like, after you've worn it for a little bit, don't dip it in water. Yeah. Not, not, That's don't. what I think. Okay. Like, wear it. Don't, don't take it off and wash it. Okay. Let, let this thing get dirty. Okay, that makes sense. Because I was picturing, like, if you buy something new and then you wash it before you wear it for the first time. But this is, like, post-wearing it. Mm-hmm. I okay. think so. All right. 
So yeah, so then he uh, he wears it and has to hide it in a cleft of the rock and uh, eventually goes back for it and it's spoiled. It was good for nothing, says verse 7. Yeah, I think you guys are reading ESV. I kind of like the way that the CSV makes it a little bit more okay. pronounced. Yeah, lay it on us. Uh, first, because the CSB calls it underwear, it makes it more clear that this isn't that. That's what it is. Okay. What What does the ESV call it? it uh, it says go and buy a linen loincloth. Yeah. So thirteen one CSB calls it a linen undergarment, and then in verse four, take the underwear that you bought and are wearing and hide it in a rocky crevice. And then later on, he's supposed to dig up the underwear, and it was ruined of no use at all. And then later on, the Lord says that Israel will be like this underwear of no use at all. Verse 11, just as underwear clings to one's waist, so I fastened the whole house of Israel and Judah to me, so that they might be my people for my fame, praise, and glory, but they would not obey. I, I just think by being a little bit more clear, it allows us to picture it a little bit more vividly and then think about Israel and Jeremiah who are seeing this vivid portrayal. And and I would wonder how public of a display this was. I, I don't think it was that public because we're following chapter 12 where it seems like Jeremiah is very much questioning why the wicked seem to be flourishing and the righteous are not. And here he gets a very clear and personal picture about what's going to happen to the wicked. And then gets a message to tell the people, right, as a, as the prophet. Yeah. It's just a bizarre way of Jeremiah very experientially seeing Israel for what it is at that point, which is useless to the Lord. So I think sometimes when we read texts about God's judgment, we're like, man, why does God have to be so mean? Um, and we are helped along the way because earlier Jeremiah referenced because Israel broke the covenant, all the curses of the covenant are happening. But even still, we might be like, man, can't God just give them a break? But if we were to buy a pair of underwear, wear it for a long time and never wash it, and then hide it somewhere and a long time later dig it up and see how useless and gross it is, we wouldn't put it back on our bodies. You know, it'd be like, oh, gross, get rid of this. Take it away from me. And and that helps us maybe emotionally connect with what's going on from God's perspective here. Because <clears throat> repentance would have been washing it, and they just haven't repented up to this point, so they're just still nasty. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. It's good imagery. Yeah, I don't think that I'll use this you know, personally ever when like giving a declaration to our church, because that would be a really long process. And also, you know, I, I don't want to wear dirty underwear for a long time and then hide it somewhere and bring it into church for a show and tell. I was going to say, maybe we should do that as a church, everybody individually. I think if everybody starts worshiping idols in our church, then we'll do this. Okay. Then we'll enact the underwear movement. Yep. Okay. Yeah. It's a whole movement. Okay. The message that he tells Jeremiah from this rotting underwear passage is, is pretty gruesome, too. 
So tell them this is what the Lord says. May your jars be filled with wine. And they'll reply, hey, that's good. Jars are supposed to be filled with wine. He's like, no, this is what I mean. I'll fill this land with drunkenness from the king to the prophets and priests down to the common people. Then I'll smash them against each other, parents against children. I will not let pity or mercy or compassion keep me from destroying them. And like the wine imagery, it's like wine spilling all over because. Yeah, it's like they're drunk on, you know, the images that we get throughout the prophets being drunk on God's wrath, um, drinking this up. It It's a act of judgment. And it is like the inverse of the promises that we read in Isaiah 25, 6, where on the mountain of the Lord, there will be fine vintage wine and these choice cuts of meat and peace everywhere. Well, here there's a like wine of judgment that's poured out. A goblet of wrath. That sounds like a Harry Potter book. <laughs> Jeremiah and the cup of God's wrath. Yeah. Goblet of wrath. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Jeremiah and the goblet of wrath. Ooh. I think that would be a sweet book to write. Like if you were doing a kid's book edition of Jeremiah, I'd want to call it Jeremiah and the Goblet of Wrath. Wait, there's a there is a movie called Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I know. Oh. I don't know Harry Potter at all. It was so innocent the way you said it there. Like, but actually there is a Harry Potter. <laughs> I typed in goblet and it came up. <laughs> I'm glad you did some in-studio research on that one. Yeah. As we transition to the New Testament, we will be starting by talking through the book of Colossians. Best fact, Colossians is the first book that Joshua preached through at Crystal Lake Road Baptist Church. And we have no audio recordings of it, and almost no one who's here now was there then. So I think Josh could preach through it again. And it would be great for everybody. What did you guys find notable or interesting from our reading in Colossians? I have to say that I read Colossians a little bit more closely than I did First Thessalonians. But so you could probably guide us through Colossians. Oh. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the first things that I noticed in chapter one was that the phrasing that Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 15, saying that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, that's confusing, right? How, do, how would you explain that to someone, especially maybe a new believer who's reading that? Um, I mean, I would assume it's because Jesus was flesh and blood, and he was real on an earthly, physical level, as far as that goes. So I guess that's that's what he's drawing at. He's the actual image of an invisible God. That's how I took that. What do you think, Aaron? I would probably say that this is likely an ancient hymn. It's possible that Paul came up with this himself. But it's also possible that this was a hymn of the early church where they are attributing worship to Christ as God. So there's a recognition of the deity of Jesus Christ. And there's also recognition that though God is not flesh, God became flesh in Jesus Christ. And of course, we have early Trinitarian expressions 
throughout the New Testament that indicate God is one of one essence, but three persons. And Christ is the embodied Godhead, you know, the the third person of the or second person of the Trinity. So he makes known, manifest, visible, the invisible Trinity. So we do have to get into the Trinity a little bit here. Yeah, I mean, I think we just want to adopt the language of the creeds and confessions when we talk about the, the Trinity because we don't want to become heretics. But we do want to say that um, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father. Um, he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, mm-hmm. not made, consubstantial with the Father. Um, through him, all things were made. So he is a human, but he is God. And this is, you know, the mystery of the incarnation. Further down in chapter one, we see that Paul even rejoices in suffering and perseveres. For me, it, it piqued my interest because I'm, I'm thinking, I don't, I don't rejoice when I encounter difficult times, even though Aaron just preached through James where we had plenty of encouragement on to do that but. yeah so am i the failure here or are you the failure is or is james the failure i think it's definitely james and okay. and, and me uh there's no blame on you I, I no i think i think we all uh have trouble rejoicing and suffering and in part i would say that's okay in part it's probably because a lot of our suffering we don't experience in service of Christ. So it's a little bit harder. You know, often we bring suffering on ourselves because we're not living wisely and according to the way that God would dictate. So then we bring hardship on ourselves. And that's a different kind of hardship than the hardship Paul is talking about here, where he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. How many of our sufferings are for the sake of the gospel? Not that many. Um, I mean, at least not for me. But I think if any of us intentionally entered into suffering in order to accomplish gospel ministry, it would probably be a lot easier for us to rejoice in that suffering. So, for example, if one of you guys are like, man, um, the gospel really needs to go to this place that it hasn't gone, and we can we can do this, but that means we're moving away. We're selling our house and we're going to live off those proceeds and raise money and go be missionaries somewhere. There's a kind of suffering that's hard, that's legitimately hard, but it's easier to rejoice in it because now it's you're sharing the gospel, you're seeing people come to faith who might otherwise not come to faith, or at least you wouldn't be able to experience that. Or um, I think of families at our church who are like, man, let's give money to this giving campaign so that we can get into this new building. Well, I would imagine is there's some financial strain on them. It's like hard, but also a lot easier to rejoice in that kind of suffering because you know what's happening through the suffering. Now, if I'm like being thoughtless about my budget and I go out to eat five nights in a week and I'm not feeling well because I just ate really crappy food for a whole week and I gained some weight and I have less money and I feel like some measure of suffering, should I rejoice in that kind of suffering? No, I think I should say, man, I didn't live wisely. So hopefully that's helpful. And that's a kind of stark contrast. Mm -hmm. But 
often our lives are kind of in the in the in between of those two things but ultimately we do want to find joy in the lord regardless of the reason for our suffering yeah that makes sense it's harder to rejoice in suffering when you're like wait i'm dumb i brought this on myself i'm stupid i could have avoided this had i been wiser so yeah that's different than like you said making sacrifices or suffering to further gospel ministry yeah and i you know i could just keep coming up with situations but i could imagine someone moving from a warmer state to burnsville minnesota to become part of a church restart our church and as they're going through their first winter here hating everything about winter and but also at the same time rejoicing that they're able to participate in a ministry and help a church even though life would have been easier somewhere else that's a good one. Yeah. What other ones do you have? Um, let me think. <laughs> I I could see a situation where someone hates any form of public speaking, mm. but uh, and like it has physiological effects on them. But they encounter a situation where they need to step in for somebody, and they do to either teach a Bible class or they step in and pray during a service or something like that. And there's a kind of suffering that they'll experience, but they can also find joy in it because they know that they're serving the Lord and serving the Lord's people. That's also a good example. So it sounds like the suffering that Paul is talking about here is the suffering for the gospel, right? And he encourages the believers in Col- at Colossae. The, be- the believers he's talking yeah, to. Yeah, just a quick interjection. Uh, yeah. I hate saying that word because I, I don't know the right way. Classe, classe. Colosseum. Thank yeah, you. It's tough. So Colosseum. He encourages these people that Christ lives in them and we share in his sufferings, but we also share in his glory. And so that should be encouraging as they encounter suffering similar to how Paul has. Yeah, and I I just want to reiterate that the suffering that we experience, some of it will be the kind of suffering that allows us to share in glory. But some of the suffering that we experience is the fruit of sinfulness. (laughs) That's how you pronounce it, I guess. Matthew, how can we teach and admonish one another to cultivate maturity in others? I, I think first off, you have to have somewhat decent relationships with each other so that way you can talk about things or you know how to encourage or where to encourage or where to admonish. So I would say building relationships, doing church life together, and then just being willing to speak up when you feel like you have something to say to somebody in a loving, encouraging, but admonishing way. There's a verse in Hebrews where it talks about how encouragement promotes holiness. And I was going to say, he pointed out encouragement as one of the ways, and I think that's key. I think encouragement happens a lot of different ways and is, I think, central to healthy, like true relationships. So I wanted to make that connection, but I don't know where that verse is in Hebrews. I don't have time to read the whole thing. Yeah, you don't want to just like pound people into the ground because they 
make mistakes because we all make mistakes. Yeah, and I think as we read in Colossians and First Thessalonians for this week, we encounter Paul who is encouraging individuals and at the same time pushing them on towards maturity and development. So encouragement sometimes brings with it rebuke, but it always is for the purpose of pushing forward people into maturity, not for the purpose of sucking up to them or trying to ingratiate yourself to them. So Paul actually continues this in just a couple verses later in chapter 2, verse 2, and he says that he wants this church to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love, and I want them to have confidence that they understand God in Christ and all treasures wisdom knowledge. So do you think that our church could be said that we that we are encouraged in heart and united in these strong ties of love? Is that what we're striving for? How do how do we do that? Like it's just piggybacking off the the last question here. I think that's a goal that we have as a church and that's even included in our mission statement. You know, we we want to glorify God and we want to grow together as disciples of Christ. And we do that being knit together in love. There's probably an unlistable amount of ways that we attempt to do this, hopefully in every interaction. But I think even things like, for example, today we have our work and pray day. It's another opportunity for people to spend time together to um, think about what it, over lunch as we do a devotional, think about what it means to be Christian workers. To, we'll share lunch together. I think every everything that we do is intended to draw us closer together. Um, this is why some of the things that we do are not very efficient. So our work days are not efficient, but that's because it's they're intended not only for us to steward our property well, but also for people to spend time together, working together and encouraging each other, being knit together in love. Um, this is why we have things like our meal signups when people get sick. This is why we have people in the church doing the prayers of the people where we're praying for requests in our Sunday morning services. I would I'd just say that virtually everything we do is um, at least partly motivated by a desire for us to be joined together in love as our hearts are encouraged. So we move on to chapter 3 and... Paul says, since you've been united with Christ, raised with Christ, and we have these realities in heaven, we're supposed to set our minds on things in heaven and not on things of earth. How does that, how do we work that out? Doesn't it seem kind of the opposite of, you know, we're living as human beings, experiencing life physically, but we're not supposed to think about the things of earth? What, what does that actually mean? What is he talking about here? especially when we think about how God speaks to us through earthly things. Like, should I we be just be shun them. <laughs> Whoa. Yikes. <laughs> Coffee kicked in. There it is. Love it. Shunned. Now we know what you're like for like 15 minutes at home before you get to work. That's about what it is. Back, <laughs> un, back to the slump. Unshunned. Nice. <laughs> exactly. AJ, I think that's a really good question. And this is probably where that phrase, people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, originates maybe. But I would want us to define earthly, not based on 
whatever comes to mind when we hear that phrase, but based on Paul's own definition of earthly, just a few verses later in verse five, when he says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry, um, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, lies, all of these things. He's, these are the earthly things that we're not supposed to be engaging in. So when he says, don't, don't engage in that, you know, don't set your mind on these things. It's those things that he's talking about. He's not saying don't marvel at creation, you know, that that's antithetical to Paul's theology, but don't, don't give yourself over to all of these earthly things that were just listed in verse five and following instead set your mind on heavenly things. And by setting your mind on it, it means pursue it, embody it in your living. So compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, um, put on love, peace, all of these things. Uh, that That's what it means to set your mind on things above. Well, I guess one question I had about this section, because some of it sounds a little bit like, I forget what book it was in, but the fruit of the spirit, and we kind of discussed that, but like the fruit of the spirit is fruit of the spirit not at least in that passage it was less like try to do this Mm because it's just fruit from the spirit but this section is a little bit more like take action and try to do these things or try to put these things on so like I guess in what way should we consider this passage slightly differently than that one yeah I think maybe slightly differently but I don't know that it's saying something altogether different because here in verse 16 for example Paul says let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. So I think even here he's saying the way that you put these things on is through the transforming word of the gospel and through the transformation of the identity that you now have in Christ. So these are not things that we conjure up, but they're things that we participate in because as he said in the first few verses, we are in Christ. Continuing what you mentioned in verse 16, let the message of Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with the wisdom that he gives, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms to God with thankful hearts. So it seems like Paul is saying that songs that we're instructed to sing have a teaching quality. And I think that might be one answer to what we were talking about earlier is how do you teach and admonish one another? Well, I think it's here by singing songs together, singing theologically rich, biblically accurate texts, singing Psalms, singing the Bible. How does that, how does that make us think differently about the music at church? Yes. (laughs) I'd like to have actually, I'd like to have some music people on the podcast at, to talk about some of the songs that we sing because I think that would be helpful because I know you've said before, Aaron, that it seems like our lives are shaped more about the songs that we sing because it's they're in our heads than maybe even the Bible itself. Yeah, I think it would be really good for families to pull up the lyrics to one of the songs. So every week you post the Spotify playlist. I think Ruth puts it together and you post it on social media. I think if... Every family in our church, sometime during the week, during their family devotional time or whatever else, just pulled out the lyrics to one of those songs and just talked through the lyrics, it would be really spiritually enriching and instructive. 
we all sing these songs and it's yep. a huge part of worship and it's important here because Paul's telling us why and saying that it's a main source for encouragement and teaching as you're like, that's one of the main involvements of you as someone coming to the gathering on Sunday. That's how you're involved mainly. You know, we have other ways that we try to have the congregation involved during the order of service, but singing is a major one. Yeah. I love it. We now turn our attention to first Thessalonians. Paul as we read in Acts, spent a very short time in the city of Thessalonica or Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And after sharing the gospel there to some effect, the Jews jealously pursued after Paul in order to silence him and his followers. So they experienced persecution. And with the help of these new converts, Paul escaped to Berea. So if you want to read about this, this is in Acts 17. And although Paul was able to establish a church in Thessalonica, Um, He was not able to remain in that city to instruct them at any length at all. So he really had to just entrust them to the Lord for their spiritual growth and development. And it may be that at some point, Paul was even fearful that these individuals would have reverted back to um, their former ways because of the persecution that was so strong. So Paul sent Timothy to the city to strengthen and encourage the believers, and Then Timothy returned to Paul and gave a good report. So Paul was encouraged by this, and um, he, he wanted to visit them, though it seemed like this would be unlikely. But the report did at least lead Paul to write this letter and the next letter to the Thessalonians. Now, I think that the whole book is structured really according to the relationship that Paul has with them. So he recounts these things, and he, he moves throughout it. So he starts in chapter 1 with just a note of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. And then in chapter 2, he recounts his ministry among the Thessalonians. And then in chapter 3, he talks about his relationship with the Thessalonians. And then uh, he concludes chapter 3 with a prayer for the Thessalonians. So you can see how the whole thing is structured with his relationship there. And then it's not until chapter 4 that he begins giving them explicit instructions. Now, of course, in the material leading up to this point, the things he's saying to them should guide their behavior and doctrine in particular ways. But then in chapter four, he gives them instructions regarding sanctification in the first eight verses, and then um, instructions regarding love and work in verses nine through 12, and then instructions regarding the end times in verse 13, going through chapter five, 11, and then instructions regarding their life together in verses 12 through 28 of chapter 5. Is that verse, these verses about the end times, are the, is that an important passage for, for that topic of study? I think so. I think it gets overblown, though. Um, and I can see why people latch on to this. And I, I'd want to point out that probably outside of Galatians, probably Galatians is the first letter Paul wrote, and then the next letters are probably these letters to the Thessalonians. So a pretty early letter. They're pretty then. early. So I'd want to say that we need to remember Paul is a human who's developing in his theology, and we have more articulate explanations of the end times in later letters, like 1 Corinthians, for example. So he references the resurrection here, but it it's really vague, and he uses more apocalyptic and 
um, symbolic language to describe the end. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, he goes into much more detail. So it might, it's mostly a general overview of this, of his understanding of the resurrection at the time for the Thessalonian believers. Yeah. So because they're experiencing persecution and he's, it seemed like he was anxious about them. And so he's giving them a little bit of hope. Yeah. So I think these people are saying, look, um, we thought Jesus Christ was coming back. Maybe some of them are saying, um, has this already happened? Did we miss it? Or, um, you know, just like Jesus's first coming came to Israel first, did are we just not aware? Has this happened yet? You know, and, and I think that's helpful for us to think about, like shape our imagination of Christ's return. You know, sometimes we have this really weird imagery or we don't quite know what to think, but, and, and it's hard for us to know what to think, but I want us to say, yeah, if, if we're thinking, Christ returns to a place on earth, Christians could be fearful that they miss it or they haven't heard the news yet. And they they want the news of Christ's second coming to come right away. And I think that's why Paul uses the imagery that he does. Um, We know that clouds are often used to talk about the glory of the Lord. They're symbolically representative of God's glory. And it seems like Paul is trying to communicate here that when Christ returns— He'll return with the clouds. That is, the glory of the Lord will be present across the globe, so no one will miss the return of Christ. And at his return, there there will be a resurrection from the dead of all those who have died in Christ already. So in verse 16, when he says the dead in Christ will rise first, we should think bodily resurrection, because in verse 14, he already talked about Jesus who died and rose Again, so this raising language, I I would be a little bit cautious about saying this is like rising and floating up into the air or something like that. It's rising as in the resurrection. Now, later on, he says, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. I, I think sometimes this is used to describe a rapture, like we go up to heaven or something, and we're in heaven forever. I think what he's doing instead is drawing on this imagery where uh, a ruler would come to a town and the leading delegates of the city would come out and meet the ruler and then travel back with that ruler into the city. So you could think of a Roman colony. If the Caesar was coming to that colony, they wouldn't wait to receive him till he got in the city, they would go out and meet him and then come back to the city with him mm-hmm. and dwell with him there. So it's hard. I, I think that a lot of this is symbolic. You know, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to discount a, we all float up into the sky somewhere, but I, I also would want to say Paul is probably drawing on imagery like that of going out to meet the ruler and escorting him into the city. And, we should probably, on the one hand, affirm there will be a really cosmically noticeable event when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. But also we should be a little bit agnostic as to precisely what that will look like. So we can take some of this as symbolic because of the apocalyptic language that's being used here. I think because both because of the apocalyptic language and because of the actual practice that the Colossians would have been aware of, of when the, the, 
the Caesar right, or ruler right. would come to the city, people would go out and meet the ruler and then come back into this, escort him sure. back into the city. I think that's all Paul is drawing on is this, this picture. Mm-hmm. And is he intending for that to be literal? No, I think he's just trying to communicate, look, when Christ comes, we're, you're going to know it. And um, Christ, like the Caesar, will be among his people. Because he continues some of that in chapter 5, too. Yeah, and we'll encounter maybe a little bit more of this end times emphasis in Second Thessalonians as well. But again, I just want to emphasize that Paul is developing in his theology. It, it's That might sound weird that Paul would need to develop in his theology, but clearly in his later letters, he gives a fuller articulation of these things. So we should not grab onto just one thing that Paul would say, but take everything into account. And then we need to take everything the New Testament authors say into account. And I don't think we should try to overly harmonize them. Instead, I think we should try to say they're they're trying to give us images and hope, but they're not trying to lay out specifically exactly what will happen. When you think even of the way Jesus talked about these future events, um, he would use apocalyptic symbolic language and say things like, look, even the Son of Man does not know when these things will occur. Mm-hmm. So there is, it is sort of shrouded in mystery, and that's okay. So we just want to avoid the error of being overly specific in trying to harmonize these things. So he's more just preparing them for the coming of Christ, but also that affects how they live right now and... Yeah, he wants them to think about the future return of Christ, and he wants them to live in a way appropriate to the future nature of that return. More than that, I think, as he uses this imagery of going out to meet the ruler and escorting him back into the city, it should orient Christians to living in this world in a responsible way, understanding that what we do in this life actually matters, because we aren't going to be escaping from this world forever, but instead will be dwelling on the earth, renewed by the presence of Christ forever. You know, we'll, we'll dwell with him here, even though sometimes we sing songs of like, you know, we'll live in glory land forever or something like that. that that's just not true. It's true in the sense that heaven comes down to earth as Christ establishes his kingdom, but it's not true that we just escape from here and, and live in heaven forever with God. Um, some of our hymns wrongly understood give that imagery, but we need to understand it more rightly as Paul is describing it here, that Christ will rule and reign on this renewed earth. And I think that new earth language is illuminated in the way that Paul talks about the new self, even in Colossians that we just read. It's not that the old person, you know, it's not that you were destroyed, demolished, obliterated, and God made a new you out of it, it's that the you are being renewed by Christ. And I think the whole earth will be renewed by Christ at his coming. Yeah, Yeah, he has a couple moments where he just brings a lot of clarity and simplicity to our Christian living. And I think that's really helpful. So I think it's really good for us to reflect on things like 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says about brotherly love, You don't need me to write to you about this. God is teaching you that you need to love one another. But we want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. 
and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So I, I just think that's an interesting way of talking about the Christian life and one that doesn't quite fit with the way that a lot of Christians talk about the Christian life. You know, I think people tend to be like, uh, it doesn't really mean much to be a Christian or let's go be a culture warrior for Christ or something like that. And Paul's saying, no, live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Love one another. Be at peace with one another. Don't stifle the spirit. I, I think taking these instructions and putting them into action. Imagine if every church lived in the way that Paul describes in this letter. Well, we would all be much better off for it, and I think God would be more glorified through it. And hopefully we as a church will continue to move in that direction in embodying embodying what we see described here. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I think that's a, a good thing to to leave off on. So you have something else to talk about? No, I, ju- I just thought this is a great letter. And um, First Thessalonians is pretty pretty helpful for us because it's so simple. Mind your own business, lead a quiet life, love others, be at peace, don't be idle. Amen. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. We're excited to continue to finish through reading through the Bible and talking about it every week. And if you have any questions, you can always find us at resurrectionmn.org. And there are spots where you can find on the podcast tab to submit questions. If there's anything that you have that you want answered or talked about or something maybe that we missed, feel free to submit a question there and we will do our best to answer that. We'll see you next week.